Is that nostalgic for anybody? Anybody grow up in the uh, famous Mr. Rogers era? The, the, the um, quintessential scene of him walking in, as if you follow that music there, you know that it kind of takes you inside one of the homes in this model neighborhood that he's created where you see Mr. Rogers in, entering and he sings his famous song. In fact, those of you who are maybe slightly younger in our audience, in case you missed it, in case you don't understand why I'm wearing a cardigan today, um, <laughs> take, take a look at this. It's a beautiful day in this neighborhood, a beautiful day for a neighbor. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? It's a neighborly day in this beauty wood, a neighborly day for a beauty. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? I have always wanted to have a neighbor just like you. I've always wanted to live in a neighborhood with you, so Let's make the most of this beautiful day. Since we're together, we might as well say, would you be mine? Could you be mine? Would you be my neighbor? Won't you please? Won't you please? Please, won't you be my neighbor? And so we're neighbors again today. I'm glad to be with you. Glad to be with you. Isn't that nice? That's just such a great way to start the day. It's funny when you go back and you watch some of the old episodes of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. You almost can't imagine kids being entertained by this because it's so simple. There's almost no explosions or cartoon characters chasing each other or anything like that. And yet there is something that is so profound about it as, as well. Um, it's interesting that uh, Fred Rogers, when he was asked about that simple introductory song that he sang at the beginning of every episode, he, he described it this way. He said, I, I, well, I suppose it's an invitation. Won't you be my neighbor? It's an invitation for somebody to be close to you. So this, in fact, was actually Fred Rogers' vision. It, it, he understood what he was trying to do as an invitation into relationship. And, and if there was an opportunity to teach kids this concept, this idea of how to view each other, how to view the world around them, then perhaps, just maybe, people could learn to love their neighbors. And in fact, Fred Rogers once said, um, when describing his vision, what he, what he felt like was most important, he said, the greatest thing that we can do is to help somebody know that they are loved and capable of loving. See, this morning we are beginning our, our fall teaching series um, entitled, Won't You Love Your Neighbor? And as much as it's fun to have, to remember and, and the nostalgia of kind of looking back and thinking about this simpler time and, and using these, these references to Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, this is not a sermon series about Fred Rogers. This is, this is a series where we seek as, the, as followers of Jesus, as the body of Christ, to take his words seriously. When he, when he said to his disciples, love God with every part of your being and love your neighbor as yourself. 
In fact, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus said that you can take all of the Torah, all of the law and the prophets and the Old Testament, and you can boil it down or sum it up in these two commands. Love God with everything that you have and love your neighbor as yourself. And what we're going to discover is that these commands, these words of Jesus are inseparably linked. In fact, it is impossible for us to love God and not love our neighbor. Additionally, if you have been around Chapel Street for any amount of time, you will know that that these words of Jesus have profoundly shaped who we are trying to be as a church and the impact that we're trying to have in this community and our neighborhood. They've profoundly shaped and affected our vision as a church and, and, and led to the existence, honestly, of the Mill Creek campus. We, we talk about this both corporately, both as a group, a community of people trying and efforting to allow this community that surrounds us to know that there's a church here that loves them and that wants to be in relationship with them and that they belong here. So we do things like block parties and trivia nights for that express purpose. It's an invitation into relationship, to quote Fred Rogers. But we also are trying to live this out personally. We're, we're, we're trying to envision what it would look like to be a chapel on our street. So when we leave this place, when we exit this building, we go to our homes and our communities and our workplaces and, and anywhere that God leads us and any place that he puts us with the people that we do life with. And we try to live out this vision that Jesus gave us as a church to, to love our neighbors. This in the course of the next four weeks together, we're going to be looking at a series of passages primarily found in the Gospel of Luke that, that help us understand what it looks like to love God by loving our neighbor. So we're going to turn this morning to Luke chapter 10. Um, this account is also recorded in the Gospel of Matthew, as I referenced earlier, but I'm going to, I'm going to stick with Luke this morning. It's interesting because the, the account in the Gospel of Matthew and the account in the Luke are slightly different. So some people uh, believe that these are actually two separate incidents that are recorded here. This is Luke chapter 10, verse 25. He says, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is it written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? That's so Jesus-like, right? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? We're gonna, we're gonna pause there for today. See, this, this command to love our neighbor, there's a, there's a few things that, that I think inform the motivation behind this call to love our neighbors. And, and this passage begins with, with a critical question. A critical question. I've, I've referenced before um, times when my wife has gone out of town for a long weekend to hang out with friends and different things like that, my own sort of insecurities about 
managing everything at home and getting my three daughters to every place they have to be. And my wife does a great job of, of preparing me for this. Um, I'm not totally incompetent, but I'm, I'm kind of incompetent, I guess. <laughs> And there's a lot of things that she does on a regular basis that, that I don't do. And so oftentimes before she leaves, she'll, she'll write down or sit down with me and go over everything that needs to happen. And honestly, it's overwhelming when you think about everything that needs to, to take place and who needs to get where, when, and who needs to be fed and all that. I guess feeding should be. That sounds kind of obvious now that I say that one. <laughs> But I, sometimes when all these details are coming at me, like I'll just pause and just say, just tell me what I need to know. Like tell me the essential stuff. What, what, okay, I gotta make sure I have this person at this practice at this time. Like just give me the core details and I will figure out the rest. See here, here this conversation, this encounter with Jesus, it begins with a question. Give, give me the core details. Give me what's at the heart of this. This is an essential and critical question. There's this person who is simply identified as an expert in the law, and we see right away that he has sort of an ulterior motive in coming to Jesus. His, his desire is, in fact, to kind of expose Jesus as a fraud. So he, he's coming with a question that he thinks is either going to cause Jesus to sort of say that this message that he's been teaching and proclaiming and all his talk about the kingdom of God, he doesn't really mean it and expose Jesus as a hypocrite, or he's going to say something that is counter to the law of Moses, to the Torah, and expose himself as a heretic, and either way, he's going to be disqualified. And Jesus does what he so often does. He, he turns it back on him. So this expert in the law comes and he asks the question, boil it all down for me. At, at the very core of it, at the heart of it, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What, what do I need to do, Jesus? You've been walking around telling everybody about the kingdom of God, so what do I need to do uh, to be a part of this kingdom? Or, or said differently, what is the meaning of all this life in, in your teaching, Jesus? It's a good question, a fair question. And again, Jesus in, in prototypical Jesus form turns it back and says, well, how do you answer that question? You're, you're the expert in the law. Why don't you tell me what you think? What's written in the law, he asks. How do you read it? So this expert in the law responds by reciting two portions of, of the Old Testament law. He, he, he recites from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and from Leviticus chapter 19. In fact, let's turn real quick to Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is from the book of Deuteronomy. So just for some context here, Deuteronomy is, is a book of preparation. The people of God have been wandering around in the desert for 40 years. They are on the, the verge of entering into the promised land, of crossing the Jordan. And before they do this, before they take this land, Moses wants to make sure they're ready, that they're prepared for this new season of life. And so he's giving them this, these commands to follow. This is how you do life in, in the promised land. And this is what he says. This is verse 4 of Deuteronomy 6. He says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And he continues on from, 
From there, these verses in Jewish tradition are known as the Shema. For thousands of years, faithful Jewish families, men and women and children, would begin their day every day by reciting this verse and close their day every evening by praying this prayer. And it's called the Shema because the, the first Hebrew word in that text is the Hebrew word Shema. And Shema is translated here and throughout the Old Testament as, as hear or listen. Listen to what I have to say to you. It's, it's a common word that we see throughout the, the Old Testament. And just like the way we use this, the word listen in, in English, the Hebrew word Shema means more than just allowing audible sound waves to enter our eardrums. It means understanding and taking action on it. For example, when, uh, when I was a newlywed, my um, wife was making, baking a cake for her sister's birthday. And we had made the horrible mistake of getting a, a Weimaraner puppy, um, which is just like the devil incarnate dog. Like it's, <laughs> this just destroyed so many things in our house. And she said, I've closed all the doors to the kitchen. There's chocolate cake cooling on the counter. Don't open the doors. Don't leave it open so that, that Griffin can't get in there. And I was like, I've got it. You know, I was upstairs working, doing something. And the phone rang. And I went downstairs to answer the phone. I went through the kitchen and answered it and took the call and left the door to the kitchen open. My dog ate an entire chocolate cake. I heard the audible sound waves came into my ears. I did not listen, right? See, there is a difference. When, when, we, when the word Shema is used, from God's point of view, what he's telling his people when he tells them to listen is he's instructing them to obey. L listening in, in, in the Hebrew culture and when God is giving these commands, this is, this is keeping the covenant. And what's interesting here is that this, this expert in the law, he is able to connect his understanding of what it means to keep the covenant, to follow this, not only with what the Old Testament has given them about how they as a people are to relate to God, but he also makes the connection to how they relate to each other, to the people around them. And so he adds that phrase to, to Deuteronomy chapter 6, to the Shema, and he quotes from Leviticus chapter 19, and he says, and love your neighbor as yourself. And when Jesus has heard all this, he says to him, you're exactly right. Right? In verse 28, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. See, I think it's, it's at this point that this expert in the law who came in an effort to expose Jesus is now feeling a bit exposed himself. He's answered his own question. You just, you just need to keep the covenant. You just need to love God and, and love people perfectly all the time and you're in, that's it. But even as the words are exiting his mouth, he's feeling the gravity and the weight of what he's just said. Like, you know those moments when you don't hear it until you say it? Like, and kind of as the words, like, I, I have done this before, when I, usually when I've said something hurtful, 
Like, and I think it's gonna come out as funny or a little sarcastic, and then as the words are leaving my mouth, I'm kind of like, my brain is like, oh no, like what have you done, right? This is kind of what is going on here, is he is answering his own question in response to Jesus. He now understands that, that the very standard, the answer that he has to this question, he cannot meet. I mean, we all feel good about ourselves. This guy feels good when he kind of reduce what it means to love God to a few rules and we keep track of, of how we're doing. But, but what happens here is in this encounter, Jesus expands his awareness by, by opening him up to the, the impact, the understanding of what God requires of him and making his eyes open to the fact that he can't do it, that he doesn't measure up. This is all from the perspective of somebody who has prided himself in the knowledge of and adherence to the law. But when he answers Jesus, he recognizes it isn't enough. The operating system of his life has been the idea that God would find him acceptable if he was religious enough or if he was moral enough. But now feeling the weight of his own words, it says in verse 29 that he he wanted to justify himself, right? Did you catch that? So he's feeling the weight of it. So he's got, I've, there's gotta be limits to this. There's gotta be, this can't. So he says he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus a second question, who is my neighbor? Which leads us then to, to Jesus' response or what I'm gonna call a divine answer. A divine answer. Again, we, we know that feeling when we find ourselves in a place where we've come to the end of our, our capacity, our ability. Like I, I can remember when my kids were getting old enough in school that when they would come to me for help with homework and, and when I was running out of my ability to help them, so like fourth grade, we'll say, somewhere in that range, right? <laughs> And what do you do in those moments? What do you do when the math that they're doing is more complicated than the math that I can do, but they still need help? You Google it, right? <laughs> That's what we all do, we Google it. There's gotta be a YouTube video that explains to me how to do this, this equation or how to help them. And, and you go to something outside of yourself for the answer that you don't have. You see, this is where we find this guy. He has now asked a question to which he has answered and understands that in and of himself, he is not able to meet that standard. In response to the question, who is my neighbor, Jesus will ultimately tell a story. It's a story that we commonly refer to as, as the Good Samaritan. And I'm gonna hold off kind of digging into that too much because we're gonna actually go back there in a couple of weeks and, and unpack that that parable that Jesus tells. But many of you will be familiar with it. We're familiar with it as a culture. We even use that phrase from time to time. They, they were a good Samaritan, or we have good Samaritan laws and things like that. Jesus tells the story about um, an average, ordinary, everyday man who's making the journey from Jerusalem to Jericho, where he is ultimately attacked and beaten and left for dead. 
a series of different people come walking down that same road and, and some of them have credentials and are, are, are a priest and a Levi. They work in the temple and, and for a variety of different reasons, perhaps fear in their own lives of what might happen to them if they stop, perhaps just an unwillingness to intercede. Maybe they think the guy is already dead. They pass by on the other side. And then Jesus tells the story of a Samaritan one who ethnically is, is diametrically opposed, the enemy of, of a good, God-fearing Jewish man or woman. And he stops, and he cares for the guy, and he tends to his wounds, and he actually takes him and, and gets him to a place where he's safe, and he says, look, I'll, I'll cover the cost for whatever this person needs. Just, just help them be restored back to health. And when Jesus is, is telling us this story of the Good Samaritan, he's doing it in such a way that he is ultimately, it's an illustration of the story that God has been telling from, from eternity past, from the beginning of time, throughout history, from the very point of creation of the world. It, it's, it's a story of love and relationship that's followed by or marred by brokenness and sin and pain and separation and, and God intervenes. There's this intervention in the story. See, this story is, is so important because without it and absence of it, we will never understand the answer to the critical question asked in these verses. And furthermore, we'll never grasp or, or we'll never act on the why behind this command or this call to love our neighbors. So if you go all the way back to the book of Genesis, to the garden and to creation, we discover that God has created us to live in perfect and uninhibited relationship with him. So at this point in time in the story, humanity is living in the presence of God and everything is good. Everything is as it should be. But again, humankind is, is also left with a choice. They can, they can choose to trust God and his provision for them, or they can choose to define good and evil on their own terms. And you know how the story goes. Adam and Eve ultimately choose not to trust God and, and humankind along with them. Sin enters the picture. Humanity can no longer be in the presence of a holy God and on top of that, so there's, there's brokenness in relationship to him and his presence, but then there's everything between us and our relationship, it all becomes a mess. Everything now where there was unity and there was, uh, there was um, presence, there is now brokenness and isolation. But the story doesn't end there. He pursues. In fact, the Old Testament tells the story of a family beginning with a man named Abraham and his wife, Sarah. And of this family, God says, out of this family, I am going to bless the entire world. And God establishes a covenant with this family. And, and despite, as the story unfolds, all along the way, there's a variety of different people who continue to make decision after decision that says, we will define for ourselves what is good and what is evil. And, and there's all sorts of ongoing ramifications for, for sin, but God remains faithful. In fact, he continues in his pursuit because, because of his great love. 
That pursuit leads him all the way to the point where he chooses to become one of us in the person of Jesus. He comes and he, he lives with us perfectly and sinlessly. He, he declares, he's, everywhere he goes, he's talking about the arrival of the kingdom of God and he's inviting people into that. You can be a part of this, he tells them. This is what it looks like to do life in my kingdom. He takes on the ramifications of sin. He takes on death and hell by dying a criminal's death and he defeats it all by raising from the dead. See, Jesus tells this story in order for us to understand and for this expert in the law to understand that I am the answer to your critical question. He's saying that that which you cannot accomplish, that you cannot do in and of yourself, I have come to do for you. It's this story of what Jesus has done that we, we talk about and refer to all the time in the life of the church as the gospel or simply as the good news. Paul in the book of, of Romans says it this way. I love how Paul articulates this. This is Romans chapter five, verses six through eight. He says, you see, at, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, when we when we we're still unable to be the answer to our most critical question, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the best news we will ever hear in our lives. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the best thing I could possibly ever tell you. God, out of his great for love, has answered the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And his answer is, I'll do it. I'll do it for you. And our response to what he does then is, is to place our trust in his grace by faith. And, and it's this transforming experience of grace then that we begin to, to follow Jesus. It's out of that. And this ultimately leads us to the, the command to love. This, this gets us to this command, this command that we desire and seek to be obedient to out of of, of love for what God has done for us. See, oftentimes when I hear this passage, when I read the story of the Good Samaritan and I, I think about the ramifications of it in my life, my response is I need to work harder at loving my neighbor. Do you ever do that? And, and that, we'll talk about that. We will get practical in that. But, but what I want us to understand, the point I want us to begin is what empowers that love? What, what motivates that in us? You see, in, in the theology of what is unfolding here, there is a cause and effect that Jesus wants us to understand. And it begins at the place of a transformative experience of love. It, it begins there. The story that we just told, that we just talked about, the story that Jesus alluded to by, by, or illustrated by telling the story of the Good Samaritan, when, when that becomes our story, 
It radically changes and it reorients our life because we have received something and experienced something so powerful and so that a pure and un, uh, un, um, unqualified, no, um, what is the word? Like when, unconditional, man. That was just stuck, like right there, and it was, would not come out of my mouth. Just an unconditional expression of love. When that becomes our reality, when we experience it, our response to that is that we are able then to love God in return. If you've ever had somebody do something for you that just, and you're, even as, as, as imperfect as it might be, it's, it's just this beautiful expression of, of unconditional love to you, right? And you receive that, you understand that. How do you respond to that person? More often than not, that, that conjure up, conjures up in us a, a reciprocal response of love. When we understand what Jesus has done, we are then able to love God. And when we love God, we love the things, the people. We love what God loves. We love who God loves. See, these, what Jesus is, is teaching us here, these aren't separate commands. It's not one A and one B, it's, it's, it's together we love God when we love others because he loves them. And he has wrapped us up in, in this call, this mission that he has. So then we become, you and I become as followers of Jesus, if this is how you identify yourself, we become these agents or these representatives or what scripture calls ambassadors of the same love we ourselves have received. Paul in his letter to the Galatians says, this is Galatians chapter five. He says, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. That's, that's a pretty bold statement. I'll wrap up with this. And when I was a kid, I, um, my dad worked in this little family owned company um, in rural Eaton, Ohio. And and they would do these things occasionally in the summer where they would, it would be like, bring your kid to work day. And, and I was so excited about going to work with my dad. In fact, I set like four alarms and like woke up the entire house, like a blaring sound of alarms, and I slept in my clothes. Like I got dressed the night before, so it was like, ding, like 5.30, ready to go. Like nobody else was awake. Like I was just excited to, to be a part of what he does. I wanted to be a part of it. See, the command to love our neighbor, it's, it's not this, this obligatory thing that, that maybe we get to do. When we understand what Jesus is telling us, we get to see, we understand that I get to be a part of what he does. Like you, I get to go to work with dad today. When I'm, when I'm students, when you are walking through the halls of your school and you're being kind to somebody, you, you're going to work with dad today. When you go out of your way to care for or provide for a neighbor or a friend or a stranger, you're going to work with dad today. See, the command to love is rooted in an understanding and awareness that we are loved with a love that we can't even really begin to comprehend. And Jesus, when he teaches us this, he says, when you have understood this and you've received this, you get to go to work with dad today because of what I've done. It's not, a, it's not a burden that's placed on you. It's the fruit of knowing that you are love. And we go um, as a church with dad to work every day. 
So this morning, as, as we wrap up, I, I want to um, I, I want to have a time of response where we get a tangible reminder of his love. Um, every month on, on this Sunday, we take communion together. And it's one of the ways that we as a body of Christ can remind ourselves of the implications and impact of grace in our lives. And what an appropriate morning to share in that together. So I'm gonna pray with us. I'm gonna invite the ushers to come forward. They'll pass the plates. There's two cups that are stacked together. You can just take both of those and hold on to them. And then I will come and, and I will guide us in the receiving of the elements this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this day and we thank you for the opportunity to look once again at the words of Jesus and this interaction that he has with this, this expert in the law, Lord, where you transform his understanding um, because you bring him to the end of yourself. And when he recognizes that I don't have what it takes, then you step in and say, I'll do it for you. And you would ultimately accomplish that on the cross. So this morning, as we come to the table together in community, Lord, meet us in this place. Remind us again of your great love put on display that empowers us and motivates us to love our neighbors. And we ask these things in your name.